anymore. God, what we need this morning is not just more information. But what we need desperately, only you can do, and that is to transform us. So would you take my meager five loaves and two fish and do just that? Would you spread a banquet for all of us to eat and taste and see that the Lord is good? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Who is God and what is he like? Who is God and what is he like? How would you answer that question right now in this very moment? Who is God? What is he like? The book and the story of Exodus is meant to answer this question or these two questions of who is God and what is he like? Exodus is about the God who has made himself known. Uh, In our study through Exodus, we have seen that God has shown himself to Moses Uh, to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, to the Israelites, and to uh, the nations. He has revealed uh, who he is and what he is like, showing that he is a God of wonders, of signs, of of power, and ultimately of Israel's redemption. Uh, He is the God who makes himself known. But I want to make the case this morning uh, that all of that would seem irrelevant to Moses and the Israelites, and perhaps even for us today, if this God who makes himself known is also not present with his people. All of this would seem irrelevant if if God did not draw near to his people. The truth that bleeds through this passage is that God is just not out there as some distant figure, but God is right here near his people. He is a God who is both transcendent, so exalted and imminent, meaning he's close. He is exalted above the heavens, yet dwells in the hearts of his people through faith. Our God, the God of the Bible, the God of the Christian faith, is not a God who is absent or indifferent, but ours is a God who is near. This is good news for all of us, uh, but it's good news particularly for those of us who suffer and feel the weight of life in this fallen world. When the bottom falls out, when you cried all the tears that you can cry, when you get a bad diagnosis from the doctor, when you are bound by the, the ropes of anxiety, when a phone call changes your life, you need a God who is high and lifted up, but you also need a God who is near. Uh, when I was uh, younger, In my faith, I used to uh, be annoyed uh, when people prayed the prayer, Lord be with them. Uh, For me, it it came across as if uh, they weren't being uh, honest or they were not um, loving a person enough to to tell them the truth. Uh, But as I've gotten older and had my heart broken, I know that there is no better question, no better prayer to ask of God to be near to someone in their suffering. The beautiful reality is that the Lord of the universe draws near to his people. In our text today, Exodus chapter 33, uh, we see the blessing of God's presence among his people. 
Uh, Exodus 33 presents to us a kind of theological conundrum and philosophical crisis. In Exodus chapter 2, the people are asking, does God see us? Does he remember us? Does he know what's going on as they are enslaved to the Egyptians? And God responds to that plea by redeeming them and rescuing them and saving them and bringing them out of slavery. But here the Israelites in Exodus chapter 33 are wondering, has God abandoned us due to our sin? Will he be with us for the rest of the journey? I think this question is just not pertinent to ancient Israel, but it is applicable for us now. Under the same circumstances, how will God respond to us? Will God be with us even after we sin? Will God dwell with his people even after they have made a a God, a false God that cannot save them? Is our sin stronger than the Lord? This is not just a theological conundrum from eight for ancient Israel, but it's also one for us. How, God, how will God respond to us when we find ourselves in similar situations? Exodus chapter 33 tells us that God will indeed dwell with his people, but it will happen through a mediator. Who should we identify with in this text? We are not Moses going into Uh, the presence of God and communing with him face to face. But we are the Israelites who stand outside anxiously waiting if our mediator will be able to secure mercy on our behalf. This text is tailored to teach us something about the nature of our redemption and our need for a mediator. My prayer for us today is to see something of our desperate condition and see just how far the grace of God is willing to go. I want us to see three things in our text. I want us to see the result of the people's sin. I want us to see uh, the response of the people. And then lastly, we will see the request of Moses. So result, response, and request. First, the the result of the people's sin. Uh, The curtain of our text raises and God... Uh, tells Moses to depart and begin the journey to the the promised land. And he says it in verses 1 to 3. It says this, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. It's worth pausing here and starting our time by marveling at the faithfulness of God, because even after their blatant rebellion, he is still going to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Imagine how this would have sounded to the ears of the people. They would have recently just heard of death. They would have seen sores on their bodies and their children's bodies due to the plague. They would have tasted uh, the the, the golden calf as Moses, Moses forced it down their throats to show them that idolatry cannot satisfy you. 
And the consequences should have been exile and for them to be denied the land. But God calls out to them through Moses and says, I am going to still be faithful to my promises. You will fail in your participation in the covenant, but I will not fail in my participation. You broke your end of the bargain, but I will not break mine. Beloved, God's faithfulness is not predicated on our ability to be faithful to the law of God. God's faithfulness is not tied to our faithfulness. Even when we are faithless, he is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. But in this text, uh, we see something of the consequence and result of the people's sin. Remember, our text comes on the hills of Exodus 32, where the people worship a God that create with their own hands. It results in death for some and a plague on all of them. But there is another consequence that is unveiled in our text, and it may be the toughest consequence of them all. God tells them, I am going to still give you the land, but I'm not going with you. If you've been paying attention to the uh, narrative and the, the rhythm of Exodus, you will understand uh, that this is a significant problem. The goal of Exodus, the goal of humanity, the goal of the entire Bible is that God would dwell and be present with his people. This is why I said early that this is a theological conundrum and philosophical crisis. God has said that I will not join you in the land where we were to be together. Notice the language that God uses when he speaks to Moses in verse 1. Depart, go up for him, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt. Moses didn't bring anybody out of the land of Egypt. Moses didn't have ultimate responsibility for the deliverance of the people. In verse 2, he says, I will send an angel before you. Earlier, over and over again, we said uh, that God said, this is my angel and scholars, and we believe that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. But God is now saying that I'm just going to send some random angel with you. God is effectively removing his presence from among the people. In verse 3, he gives them the reason why. But I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. We shouldn't read this text as if God is some random angry person who is ready to pop off at any moment. God is describing himself in human terms uh, so that we would be able to understand. The problem is found in the fact that God is holy. That God cannot put up with sin and he must judge and condemn sin. If he does not, he is not holy or just. And the people of God are covenant breakers. They are sinful. They are unclean. They are a stiff-necked people. They are like a farm animal who stubbornly refuses to follow where they should go. The Israelites refuse to, to submit and wear the yoke of obedience to God. And because of God's holiness... He could not dwell in their midst. The people needed God to draw near to them, and yet he could not do it because of their sin. And it's here that we need to be reminded of the consequences for sin is a severed relationship with a holy God. Sin causes lost communion with God. The people in Exodus chapter 32 wanted God on their own terms. And now in chapter 33, they have lost him completely. You and I cannot live in any way we choose and have communion with this God. Sin will always cost you more than you think it will. Just a little gossip, 
Just a little anger, just a little lust, just a little disobedience, just a little lie is enough to separate us from a righteous God and cause us to be brought under his judgment. Think of our first parents in the garden. They simply ate of the fruit of the tree that God commanded them not to eat and it led to hostility between God and man. Do you think the tree had a warning label on it? Do you think the people in Exodus chapter 32 knew their idolatry would lead them to this very place? Do you think that our sin, did you think that it would lead us to this place? The people's sin led them to the place where they are now separated from God. And this is the end of the road as it appears. One commentator says this about the situation, I quote, The situation of this turn of events cannot be stressed too highly. The whole purpose of the Exodus was for God and his people to be together. God's presence with them will be firmly established in the proposed tabernacle. By saying, go ahead, but you're going without me, the events of the previous 31 chapters are being undone. This is not merely a setback. This is the end of the road. Friends, all of the covenant promises that God made to his people and all of redemption are seemingly being undone in this very moment. It's as if the the purpose of redemption is coming to a screeching halt. And I can't help but ask this question because I think it's important for us. How would you respond if you were the Israelites in this situation? How would you respond if God gave you everything that your heart desires, but he did not give you himself? If God dangled this proposition before your eyes, how would you respond? If he said, I'll give you everything you want. I'll give you joy in this life. I'll give you happiness. I'll give you peace. I'll give you a freedom from anxiety. I'll give you a good marriage. I'll give you good children. I'll give you a great career. I'll give you power and glory and influence and a legacy. And I'll give you a fruit for ministry. I'll even give you heaven in the hereafter. But you can't have my presence. How would you respond to that? Unfortunately, you're probably like me. And there's times where you would say that's too good of a deal to pass up. And this moment is where our idolatry is on full display. Lost communion with God will only mean anything to you if God is the source of your delight. The bitter taste of sin and all of its consequences will only look bad if God himself looks glorious. Can you say in this moment right now what the psalmist says in Psalm 73, whom do I have in heaven but you? And there is nothing that I desire but you. My heart and my flesh may fail forever, but the Lord is my strength and my portion. Can you sing with the the writer? He says, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. It's in this moment where we see the result of the people's sin and how it's broken their relationship with God. But let's look how the people respond. And in their response, we are taught something of how we should respond. The people's response. In verses 4 to 6, we see uh, that the people respond with mourning. They respond with weeping. They felt sorrow for the fact that God would not be going with them to the promised land. We see this in this text about how the text speaks of 
of the ornaments. And I want to point this out because I want you to see that their mourning was tied to their actions. Verse 4 says this, the people heard this disastrous word, so sad, evil, distressing word. They mourned and no one put on their ornaments. Verse 5, God says, take off your ornaments. Verse 6, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments. What is this focus on this ornaments or this, this jewelry? I think it's this. The people are taking off their ornaments and jewelry as a symbolic act of repentance. We see a similar situation in Genesis uh, 35. God renews his covenant with uh, with Jacob at Bethel and and Jacob responds. He tells his whole family um, to take off all of their jewelry and all of their all their idols and, and he buries them into the ground. And by taking off the the jewelry, Jacob is telling his family that we are rejecting the pagan idols and recommitting ourselves to the one true God. In Exodus chapter 32, you see that the the people take off their jewelry uh, to make a golden calf. But now, in this moment, they are taking off their jewelry for an act of repentance. In verse 10, we see that, uh, that now when the people uh, see Moses interacting with God, they are standing up and worshiping, which is what they should have been doing at Sinai. The Israelites are doing a very good thing in this text by removing the idols from among them. Beloved, this is a beautiful reminder that tears of repentance should always be married to actions of repentance. Grieving over sin is good and right, but it should be demonstrated in our killing of sin. Confession of sin must be in union with the putting to death of sin. Let these things be separated by none of us. And I know from experience in my own heart that it's easier to weep over sin and not allow yourself to put sin to death. Last Sunday, Pastor Quinn asked the question, what do you do when someone calls you out on your sin? And I want to follow up with another question. What are you doing currently to kill the sin in your life? Paul says these words to the church of Colossae, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Beloved, it is not legalistic to take sin seriously. God takes sin seriously, and so should his people. Sin has removed uh, humanity from joyful communion with God to exile, and now we are subjected to his righteous condemnation. We must not downplay sin. People of God in this text, out of their love for God, out of their longing to be near him, are willing to take away the very things that have kept them from God. Every morning, beloved, we are invited to put a fresh nail in the heart of our choice sin. The people respond by weeping and killing their sin. But, but to tie this all up, let's look at Moses' request. In verses 7 to 11, we see that Moses makes a temporary tent outside of the camp to speak with God. This reminds us that that earlier in the text that the the tabernacle was meant to dwell in the midst of the people, but due to their sin, it has been removed outside of the camp. It has been removed away from the Israelites. 
God's presence is still not with the people. But Moses goes outside of the camp to mediate on behalf of the people. Verse 11 tells us about Moses' unique relationship with God. It says that God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. This is not a throwaway phrase. This is God showing that there is still one Israelite who has complete access to me. And the people knew this. They would be waiting eagerly as they saw Moses leave the camp to go to Yahweh. They would be waiting to see if their mediator could fix all of the wrongs that they have uh, committed. Moses requests three things from the Lord. The first thing that he requests is found in verses 12 to 14. Moses asks the Lord, please be with me. Moses isn't content with a random messenger. So he tells God what God has already told him. He says in verse 12, you have said, I have known you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Moses points back uh, to God, uh, the fact that God chose him for this task of bringing them out of Egypt. And Moses says, since you chose me for this huge task, please show me your ways. In these verses, he uses the language of knowing six times and the language of finding favor in your sight five times. In verse 13, he asks, please show me your ways. This is Moses' way of saying, please be with me. Moses understands that his purpose in life, his role amongst the people is to know God. To know God and who he is and what he is like and what he has done for his people. It's, Moses is like, I'm go- if I'm going to be a successful mediator, if I am going to be able to do this task as I have been called to do, I need to know that you're with me. God answers Moses' request in verse 14. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This is possibly likely probably what Jesus had in mind when he told his disciples in Matthew chapter 11 verse 28 come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest Moses would have been so exhausted at his fellow Israelite sin he's been so overwhelmed with the, the need to lead these people so God gives him a promise that I will give you rest and I will be with you that's Moses's first request Then Moses moves on in verses 16 to 17 for a second request. Now Moses asks, please be with us. Moses is not content with God just being with him. Moses wants God to be with the people. Moses wants to be assured that in this moment, God will indeed dwell with his people. Listen to the verse half of verse 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight I and your people. Moses has been bold enough to ask that the Lord will be him with him, but now he's saying, please be with us. Moses is now being a faithful mediator who is representing God before the people and representing the people before God. His goal is to secure redemption, not only for himself, but also for the people as a whole. And as we read and heard last week, he is willing to sacrifice himself to make that possible. But notice the second half of verse 16. This is one of those beautiful phrases that's easily tucked away in scripture, but it has so much beauty and weight. 
Moses says, is it not your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. Moses knows that the only thing that makes him special, the people special, the people distinct is the fact that God is with them. What made Israel so special among the nations? Was it their land? Was it their pedigree? Was it their resources? They were recently enslaved. Was it their righteousness and obedience? Can't be that. What set them apart was not what they had, where they are from, what they looked like, but who was with them. This is the covenant promises that is woven throughout scripture. I will be a God to you and your children after you. I will be a God and you, I will be your God and you will be my people. What makes us special here? What makes us distinct here at Grace Presbyterian Church? What makes us distinct in Shreveport Bossier? Is it the fact that we're Presbyterian? Is it the fact that we're Reformed? Get it, I, I am Reformed. I am from the tribe of Calvin. Uh, my, my children were baptized on the eighth day. I love all those things about us, but, but I know for a fact that the only thing that makes us special as a church is the same thing that makes every other church special, and is the fact that God is with us. He is ours and we are his. Moses doesn't simply want us to be uh, like the pagan nations that surrounded them. Moses wants, doesn't want to be known as nice moral people. He doesn't want to be sanctified uh, Jebusites. Moses wants to know that God is with him. He doesn't want God to just give him this gift occasionally. He wants it consistently. God responds to this request in verse 17. This very thing that I have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God agrees to be with the people. Why? Because of the people's repentance? Because of the people's uh, mourning and grieving over their sin? No, it's because he delighted in the mediator. Moses surprisingly does not stop there. He has one last request. Moses is like a child who asked his parents for eight different things and, the, the, and the, the parents joyfully give whatever that, that, that their child is asking for. Moses keeps going and going and he asks one last request in verse 18. And maybe the most audacious of them all. He says, please show me your glory. Moses, we all know, saw part of the Lord's glory at the burning bush in Exodus 3. He experienced the peace of the Lord's glory as he saw uh, the plagues fall down on Egypt. He saw more of the Lord's glory as uh, the Red Sea was parted. He communed on the mountain in Exodus 20. But here we see Moses is not satisfied with that. He wants to experience the fullness of who God is. Moses is saying, be with me, be with the people, but show me your fullness. God responds to Moses with a yes and no. He agrees to show himself in part, but not in full. God says to Moses in verse 20, you cannot see my face, for man cannot see my face and live. And just as you cannot stare at the sun without damaging your eyes, it's even more true about the glory of God, of looking God face to face. 
God, at the end of the text, hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and passes him by. God tells Moses that you would see my back. What does that mean? It probably means uh, that Moses didn't see anything physical. Moses didn't see a giant man or broad shoulders walking by. But what did he see? I think we'll, we'll find out more next week in Exodus 34. But it seems that Moses sees by hearing. Notice that word, proclaim my name to you in verse 19. And in the Bible, this is often how it usually goes. We see with our ears. This is a picture of God preaching himself to Moses. What does God preach to Moses? He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses tells God that I want to see your glory. I want to see the fullness of you here, of, of, your, of your being. God responds by telling Moses about his grace. The God of glory is the God of sovereign electing grace. The God who dwells with his people isn't some random being in the sky, but he is one of goodness, mercy, compassion, and grace. Who is this God that is right now with us in this very moment? He is a God of grace. Beloved, this is good news, and especially good news when the dark night of the soul hits. This is the one who you want with you when you hear a phone call that snatches the wind out of you. This is the God you want with you when sorrow is laid upon you. It is this God of glory and of grace that you want to be with you. And the amazing news of the glorious gospel is that the God of grace will indeed draw near and dwell with his sinful people. Their, their sin will be no match for the unrelenting grace of God. God says to Moses, you cannot see me. I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. You'll get a piece of my glory. But one day, God will dwell in the midst of these sinful people. And they'll be able to look face to face upon the goodness and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, verse 14, uh, which could have been our New Testament lesson again this week, it says this, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Moses was a fantastic mediator, but falls woefully short compared to the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses saw a, a fragment of the glory of God, but Jesus Christ is the glory of God. One of the disciples in John chapter 14 uh, comes to Jesus. Jesus tells them that I'm going to leave and prepare a place for you. One of the disciples comes to Jesus and, and says, show us the Father. We want to see his, his glory. And Jesus responds that you have seen him. That you have beheld him, that you have looked at him because I am he. Beloved, you and I on this side of the cross have seen more of the glory of God than Moses did in the tent of meeting because Jesus has offered himself to us in the gospel. You may be thinking, I haven't seen Jesus face to face. Notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What can change a stiff-necked people like us? 
What can give us strength, power, and grace to kill our sin? What can rid us of idolatry? What can comfort our hearts in times of trials? It is by looking and beholding the fullness of the triune God in the face of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite passages of scripture is John chapter 12, verse 21, and it says this, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Would that be our plea as we walk together with each other? To say, Sir, Madam, we wish to see Jesus. Let's go before him in prayer. God, we confess the fact that everything we need is found in beholding you. We don't pretend to come before you as if that is some trite saying, but we believe it. That all the fullness of who you are is bound up in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that we would behold him in his glory and be transformed into his beautiful and glorious image. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.